Hi everyone, welcome to Business of Building, a personal note from the leaders of today to leaders of tomorrow. I'm here today to talk with Juliet Morgan. Julia is a real estate industry leader with 20 years experience working internationally. She has managed portfolios of millions of square feet in development and asset management and laterly focused her career on ESG strategies in the built environment. She led pathways to net zero and offset for a UK-based REIT, British Land and now a leader in Gensler's global climate action and sustainability practice area working with clients all over the globe to reduce their carbon impact and increase their human and biodiversity outcomes. I'm so excited to be speaking with Julia today. This has been one of my episodes worth waiting for. Um, so without further ado, here is Juliet Morgan and welcome to Business of Building. Hi, Juliet. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has it has been a crazy time in the last couple of months trying to organize our diaries to find time to speak to you. So I'm so excited. Just to give our listeners a background, Juliet, you are ESG Consultancy Director and you have you have kind of the career has grown from something else which we'll touch on but i our paths crossed in a talk you did for um estate gazette and you had this beautiful story of your journey and uh, your visit to peru which we'll touch on as well uh, but that got me really excited uh, to speak to you about what esg means but firstly how did this journey begin what what were the milestones uh, of you being where you are at Gensler right now? Oh wow, don't know whether to work backwards. So I'm very lucky to be at Gensler. Gensler is the world's largest design firm. We apparently, people argue over this number, but in theory we design a billion feet a year or the other way of looking at that is a city a year. And so I've been corporate friends with Gensler for about the last 10 years and um, many, many drinks have passed over those 10 years and many conversations about oh come on, when are you, when are you going to join? When are you going to cross the line on that? Exactly. When are, you, when are you coming to the bright side? And yeah, six months ago, that, that became real. Um, so my role is global. Um, I sit with the Climate Action and Sustainability Practice Area, I'm based out of London, but um, certainly have a European team and a US team. And then we're developing out our team in APME. And uh, yeah, so I, ESG Consulting is really around designing for ESG, so turning the reporting metrics into something real that actually hits the building. And so we straddle building certifications through to how to how to report and how to disclose. That's the that's the practice area that I sit in. And my background on and off in the last 20 years has always been surveying property development. I went to the Centre for Alternative Technology 20 years ago to look at how to build green buildings. And they have an amazing demonstration of uh, straw bale houses and round earth construction. And a lot of the things that 20 years ago were sidelined as things that hippies did and now are rapidly becoming mainstream. Trends, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one could argue I've been dabbling at the edges of this for 20 years. And that those were the times when you would say something like this and people would be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you look back and you're like, well, I told you so. <laughs> Not so much I told you so, but more, I think, you know, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants now. There are people who've been in the climate fight since the 60s and 70s. You go back to sort of Bucky Fuller in the 50s and 60s, and our ancestors have known how to do this. 
and it's only now that there's kind of collective awakening and understanding partly because we're seeing the impacts of climate change on every continent every day so yeah i think i think the voices just got louder 20 years ago it became something that as a graduate trainee i was kind of patted on the head and say yeah if it's going to interest you off you go versus now being front and center of pretty much every conversation i have and how was real estate always the ambition or was it a journey to get into? <laughs> it, it was, and then it wasn't, and then it was again. So um, I, gosh, my undergraduate degree was in international development at UEA. So it's about developing countries, developing economics, developing politics, always around natural resources. So specialising in river, river basin management and mangrove forestry and other things like that. And um, at the time, Sarah Beeney was on TV. If any of you are old enough to remember any yeah, of that. I do. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and I inherited a very small amount of money. And by that, I mean £5,000. And I, I sort of got intrigued by this idea that you could do up flats and make money. And so at some point in my late teenage self, somewhere between wanting to build green buildings and develop economies and real estate, that all fused together. And I ended up working for a surveying firm in Cambridge. Um, who who were very open-minded and actually sponsored me to go to Centre for Alternative Technology. So the real estate journey took me through science parks, innovation centres, life sciences in the US and the UK. And in 2009, I wasn't building towers in New York anymore. I was back in the UK and had a very strange moment where I'd gone from being with a team of architects designing towers for life sciences to sitting in a basement with a bottle of red wine watching Shrek. And... <laughs> <laughs> as you do and I just looked at this bottle of wine and was like oh wow wine so whilst I was going to ask on that one that's very interesting yeah. fact. <laughs> so whilst, and what triggered the wine thing whilst I'd been working quite insane hours or at least geographies for this American REIT I, my life was between uh, San Francisco New York Boston Toronto and London sort of lived in this air miles diamond accumulating a lot of air miles slash having an enormous carbon footprint uh, which probably brings you to why I now do this work that my guilt is probably bigger than most people's and I'd gone up to the Niagara wine region and I realized that people were living with the land and in they knew what the seasons were and and I didn't because most of my days were spent on a plane or in an office or in a taxi and I had dry cleaning in four cities at that point so the penny kind of dropped that there was a a relationship with land and for any of you who drink wine wine is essentially a photograph it's it's whatever happened in that place in that year stored in one kind of format and then next year it's different and next it's year like it's like a time capsule exactly that that's exactly it wow. so for that reason i found it very beautiful and very engaging so um i spent some time doing a degree in winemaking which was i think some of the happiest moments of my life and ironically none of the drunken moments of my life because winemakers say that it's uh, 95% cleaning things and 5% drinking beer because you taste so many grapes you don't really want to drink any wine and so at the end of that I ended up coming back into London working for the government on Tech City having done innovation districts 10 years previously um, from there to Cushman and Wakefield in consulting uh, working on PropTech um, probably a little bit too early and then from there to British Land which took me into kind of asset management and sustainable development and there to Gensler. Long story because I'm now really old. No. <laughs> <laughs> had all that wine on the way. Yeah, it's true, I did. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you, you, you mentioned 
that's true. <laughs> you mentioned um, the fact about um, being early in Cushman and Wakefield with the tech. What, what did you mean by that? What, oh. what were the experiences? You know, thank you for the question. <laughs> People always think innovation comes from some big sweaty think in a room with whiteboards and pens and mostly it comes from people going oh christ now what are we going to do and in that case it was very much an oh christ now what are we going to do i'd been working with somebody i just joined and they left and there was this conversation that said well that person's gone to a competitor and they know everything that we're thinking of doing so delete everything we've ever talked about and now what can we do mm-hmm. and from that was born this idea of, of pi labs so Cushman were the founder sponsors of PyLabs set up by Faisal Butt that's gone on to do really good things. And we provided the space and the professional network so that as those companies formed, they had venture investment, mentoring, and then routes through to later stages of capital. But we provided the space and the links through to customers. So it was a it was a really interesting partnership between a a real estate brokerage and a venture capital fund that continues to Which is like pretty much giving it like um, a space for it to grow and... uh... In all the ways. Yeah. But yeah, it it happened because we needed to do something that no one had thought of. Mm. And so that's... that's, And then you came into the role. Um, I was already in the role, but, um, you know, we thought we were going to do consulting and um, we did some of that, but um, it ended up going in a completely different direction to the, the original concept. Sometimes you just have to follow where there's energy and where things seem like a good idea without and um, you know, bless that management team, particularly Carlo Santalbano, Digby Flower, George Roberts, all of them got behind a very inarticulate idea and resourced it with money and time and people and and it went on to do good things. But it took an open mindedness of management to go with the oh shit moment that meant that we did other things. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is so interesting, isn't it? Because innovation, I read somewhere as well, like innovation is actually when you have been given limits and you have to you have to sort of everyone says think outside the box. But innovation is sometimes driven by necessity and you have to think within the box. And perhaps uh, is it fair to say ESG is making us think within the box, as it were, uh, given that we are. reaching the limits for all our resources now and then you're having to innovate to make sure you don't cross those limits those boundaries and then figure out how to live within our means perhaps isn't it yeah I think that's a nice way of thinking about it so I've got two thoughts one is that the human's intent at the moment is to do the right thing and be less impactful so you've got collective intent but in amongst all that there are about 30 different frameworks and guidances on just purely the ESG side that's not dealing with the real estate certification side and so in our intent to do something good we've confused the hell out of ourselves and each other with (laughs) which one I think now (laughs) right and and in amongst all that there's some clarity so things like you know one and a half degree warming SBTI SASB GRI like there there are emerging frameworks that are the GFAN stuff that Mark Carney's doing that that are starting to make some clarity out of the soup but I think we've been in the kind of in classic innovation cycles you have forming years norming performing and I I think we're still in forming years we're we're still in the kind of green powerpoint to net zero nice straight graph line here's my commitment and now I have to work out how to make it real so I think the parameters that have been given on the finance side, on the ESG side, are actually genuinely helpful because it is forcing us to think inside the box and say, right, it can't go beyond those metrics. But I also 
see very often that those parameters can can start to cancel each other out and so sometimes it's really important to just question the protocol I, i've talked about earth client before and, and you can certificate anything you like but you can still make some fairly questionable decisions if the earth was the client and so i think yeah of course follow the rules of the box and then just use your gut to check whether it's actually the right thing to do yeah, it's uh, it's the tick boxing versus actually just for, as you said. And then there is the issue of greenwashing as well, really, isn't it? I mean, recently with the personal advertisement of a Unilever's product, which was very much, uh, very much disorientating for the customers as to what you get and what you're promised kind of thing, really, isn't it? So, Yeah, I think greenwashing is difficult, isn't it? That everybody wants to be seen to be doing the right thing. And, and in this stage and age of everybody kind of working it out, I think we need to collectively give each other a bit of a break. I don't mean excuse greenwashing, but for all the time that we're focusing on the holes in somebody's corporate statement, there's value in, in just saying, OK, like that was good. Let's do better because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone's anyone in corporate is sitting there going, right, let's see how much we can hoodwink our customers and pretend that we're doing something good for the environment. I've never yet sat in a conversation that starts like that. No, fair enough. I mean, uh, also one of the things which the first time we met was the was your discovery in Peru. Could you could you share the experience? Because that was absolutely, it hit a note with me and I'd really love for you to share it with the listeners. Sure. So as part of my disgusting carbon footprint, I went to Peru. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? so we're, all, we're, we're all in conflict all the time. I work in sustainability and I've probably flown more than most other people. And somehow I need to resolve that in myself and my life. So the latest way of resolving that is to offset and to try and do less of it. Peru was um, a trip that was a hangover from pre-COVID. I've been, I'd, I was fascinated by the statement that Indigenous communities are 6% of the world's population. They look after 85% of the world's biodiversity. And I've become more of an overt hippie over the years. And so I wanted to learn from cultures that, that know how to live in balance with the world because the rest of us have kind of forgotten. And there was an opportunity to go and learn from the Caro shamans with a guy called Alberto Valaldo, who is a, an American neuroscientist who's been studying or co-developing consciousness with these Caro shamans for about 40 or 50 years. So this was authentic. And 100 people came from all over the world to be initiated as earth keepers. And the Caro shaman philosophy is that their role is to teach the rest of the world how to think and be in balance in the same way that they do. So they've been the keepers of this kind of prophecy and life balance since before the Spanish Inquisition invasion five, six hundred years ago. So that's why I was in Peru. And whilst I was there, a great many things happened, including, <laughs> including but not limited to getting hypothermia on a mountain, being initiated uh, as an earthkeeper. With, with this group of people that are now working, advocating for the earth around the world. But one of the things that really struck me was how in that culture, the buildings are very, very humble. They're made by the community. They're made out of mud. Uh, they're about two stories high, which is nothing to do with being an earthquake territory or any of those things. It's partly to do with at high altitude, you know, 12 to 14,000 feet, carrying around buckets of mud's really hard. <laughs> and the, the dry season that is if you don't get hypothermia if you don't get hypothermia well by by night but so so you'd build in community and and 
generally the buildings are sort of two-story construction because you don't need any more mm. right and and that's for me this kind of adobe construction built by community that wasn't about aggrandizing real estate it didn't need to do more for you than shelter and heat and somewhere to raise a family and what was very beautiful was the roofs of these buildings were were capped off by two cows and the cows being about kind of fertility fecundity and and generosity prayer but there would always be two to represent yourself and the other the community that you built this building with and they're made of terracotta so they're made of earth and i just remember taking this photograph of, of this roof against the mountain and the point being that in their culture the real estate is the mountain it's not the building and we we're completely the other way around we're we're all about how a building should heat me cool me know that i've arrived tell me what the weather's going to be fit a chair around every muscular Comfort. skeletal dimension i should be in right and so one could argue that in western civilizations we've slightly over complicated what buildings should be and with that comes consumption of resources so i, I guess some of what i was in peru for was to learn the value of simplicity and have you that's so beautifully put have you have you bought that back with you and are you using it in your day-to-day how 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 is that like <laughs> translated you know because I, there are some things which you you get so inspired and then the action part of it is again another beautiful journey isn't it yeah so i'd say i'm using it in two ways one is overtly and one's covertly <laughs> i mean because i'm like are you using it at work perhaps yeah, like how um, has it changed your decision making as well i'm definitely using it at work um you know, look, we all design within parameters, within agreed standards. So there's a certain extent, doesn't matter what kind of architect you are, buildings come out looking relatively similar in terms of form and function and planning conditions and materiality and insurances and all of those things. So that's not to say there's no innovation in architecture, but there's only a certain amount of pushing those envelopes you can do. It has informed my work and it has trickled through to projects. So things like we were on a project that's um, in an area that used to make bricks and so I came back thinking about mud buildings and could we do machine engineer bricks or rammed earth bricks and that wouldn't have happened as a conversation and a conversation with that client had I not been looking at that adobe building in Peru so yes it comes through directly but um, a lot of what the Cairo shamans do is they work with so the definition of a shaman is someone who bridges spirit and earth hmm. and um, one of the things that they do is they enter a space acknowledging all of the spirits of space so not just the people that they can see but the spirit of the mountain or the river or the you know the trees and the rocks and the unseen beings that are in a place and so who I was, don't have a voice who don't have a voice well we can't see them right <laughs> but they're there there is a living entity there's an intelligence beyond just humans in in a space and place so the covert piece is that i was in ireland this week and I realised that if I was Peruvian, I would have asked the spirits of the land to receive us as foreigners onto that land and to come with good intention. And so I just said a little prayer as I arrived in Ireland. And during this conversation about a building, I realised I was sat next to a graveyard and was talking to these ancestors of this place and saying, you know, is it all right? We're here as visitors, as foreigners to this land with good intention. Can we can we co-create with you? So the covert is more around taking that knowledge of Peru and asking permission and energetically coming into a space in the way that the, the Kero would have done 
because the rest of us would have gone in and shown our PowerPoint and talked about a building and, and not asked the permission of the spirits or the land. Can we be here and can we do this work? So the over is the very practical and the covert is the energetic. And we always assume as well, isn't it, that we are welcome. And right. You, you just consume space or yeah. uh, like consuming things. You, you just take space and, um, and sometimes hijack space or time and without asking for permission. So it's it's very beautifully put. And uh, for my, me, the experience, we were in Isle of Skye and we had a similar experience with the community, which which is working within the means, working with the land and how they have changed the way they're working. And also people coming together to support the community. And it was it was so much more than not that I expected it any differently or anything but it was it was very eye-opening for me yeah. as to uh, how the communities are coming together um, there is a ferry uh, they are working together to keep going so the villages come and sell things to make sure that the ferry keeps going and some small things and the crafts and how they are trying to develop the crafts and stuff to make sure that the way the ancestors lived, the tradition is carried on. So it was nice. Yeah, beautiful. And that's the thing. Indigenous communities understand about land and coming together. And if you look at even what's happened tragically in Pakistan this week, it will be communities that come together and help and support each other and recover and rebuild. And um, we, we use the word resilience a lot, but it's not, you know, we've seen the size of the buildings that got washed away. Luckily, most of the people are still there. And the resilience is in... The people. the people and the social fabric and, and our intelligence to rebuild but it's I think mother nature is re reminding us collectively about what respect looks like 100% um are you mentioned in the same talk as well that you can design in such a way 90% of the efficiencies are decided when you're designing any project and how does how can you explain to the readers how you use it at Gensler and what does that entail with every new project that comes on the table as it were so there's loads of different on the internet you'll find lots of different pathways around where carbon gets saved in the design process and essentially all of it is in the commissioning it's in the brief so if the brief is robust then once you get into so at zero stage zero concept design, if that's robust and it's asking for, you know, nature-based solutions, um, local procurement strategies where they're appropriate and relevant, you know, things not on the red list. If we are designing to net zero or net positive, as some of our clients are trying to, then once you set that as the rules, as the foundation, then design starts and um, we can track embodied carbon as we go through life cycle assessment and modeling, energy modeling, daylight studies. So essentially, you're as good as the brief was. If you, it's, it's classically, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so once you're into stage two, stage three, detailed design, you're, you're committing to, wow. yeah, you're committing to the use of resources. You're committing to construction typologies, and, and therefore, you're then committing to buying them, digging them out of somewhere, transporting them from somewhere and putting them on site. So that's where, you know, 90 percent of carbon gets saved in, in the design process and invariably right at the front end of that design process. So that's where you can still question and move things around. The, um, one of the conversations we've got into a lot recently is about column grids, column grid density driving how much concrete pour needs to go on a floor and 
the ratio of the further you move out the columns, the more concrete you put on the floor because of burn point. And the concrete being the greatest user of or emitter of, of emissions apart from the steel. So if an end user or customer is willing to t tolerate more columns on a floor plate, you can save some carbon. But more often than not, the brokerage or the, the occupier will say, no, I need clear, clear floor spans. And if you look at post-pandemic working and the fact that offices quite often can have 14 different work typologies now, yes. actually, it's not an about an array of 50 desks and being able to see neighbourhoods and villages and a clear span floor plate. Yeah, exactly. So I think we, we need a, a systems level conversation that, sorry, I was... I, no longer answering the question i'm often no 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 it's, it's very interesting because this is so interesting what you're touching on as well like covid has affected how we use the space as well yeah. really isn't it and that has an impact yeah. on what you do at the design space please please carry on yeah well just that um you know end occupiers want to be in net zero buildings they want to be in briam outstanding or you know lead platinum fitwell gold they're looking for the certifications but if we can have a conversation that says can we increase the column density then we can start to drive the design so sometimes you're designing for a developer who's trying to get a product in the market and we need occupier to designer conversations to drive where the savings can be things like terraces cantilevered off a building for wellness human wellness can drive steel consumption in the building just to be able to hold that weight to put people up in the sky to drink coffee on a terrace right so yeah and you cut into the building and still have a quasi outdoor space but that meets the human need but doesn't drive the carbon we mm. need to be able to have those conversations and the balance are designer to commissioner often the developer who's saying oh you know that's not net letable area anymore well okay, we need to make a way for it to be in that letable area for the occupier to still use it in the way they want to. So I think what's happening to real estate is systems level conversations because we are collectively beginning to prioritise carbon saving because it's it's in the value chain. It, it, it matters to us as designers. It matters to the developer to be able to sell the product and it matters to the end occupier to be able to disclose against it. And in the end, the person who's occupying the building. So... The beautiful shift I think we've seen in the last three years is this commitment to carbon and carbon. And conversations happening rather than it everyone driving their own agenda really at different stages. I mean, Not the, yeah, yes, yeah, that's the word. And also, the capital funds drive a lot of the decision making as well. Do you do you find the same? So no, we want the certification, but we we cannot afford this at this point in time so is there something we can do and not do and we still get this do you have those conversations as well <laughs> yeah so the funds are increasingly being driven to disclose against esg criteria or to give preferential lending rates to buildings that can prove that they meet that esg criteria so we're, we're not always in direct conversations with the money sometimes we are sometimes we aren't depends on the nature of the client you know in recent terms we've had conversations with very big funds and they are being measured, as we all are, by their impacts and how they're deploying that capital and good use of capital. So what's great is this has become systemic from, from how the money can be spent on to the product that it can be spent, changes what the developers commission, what we get to design and what the end occupier will use. Hmm. That's a fundamental shift. And I really appreciate the fact the finance industry is, is leading 
even in front of regulation and legislation, because it's forcing everyone else in the supply chain to meet meet the criteria. Yeah, which is which is coming through a lot of investors as well, really, isn't it? So yeah. that's like they are they're saying we will not fund this project if you don't meet certain criteria, and a lot of uh, landlords are then having to think in a different way, which which we can yeah we, we yeah. See. Have you come across G funds? I hadn't heard of it. So this is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. I um, have heard of them. Yes. Okay. So G funds has got four hundred and fifty. $450 trillion under management, according to Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So in terms of criteria, that scale of money needing to be aligned to ESG disclosure forces everything in the supply chain to, to start meeting yeah, it. Yeah, which is which is quite good. Um, with regards to ESG, what, what would you advise if someone is you know, thinking about, I do this as my day job, but this, I'm passionate about it and I would like to take the next steps. Is there like a path they need to take or is this something more natural that you fall into? Well, I'd say just to a certain extent, it's not formed yet. It's slightly wild west. And so I would narrow it down and say, do you want to be doing ESG for corporate reporting? As in that puts you down the accounting pathway. Do you want to be doing ESG for finance which kind of puts you down the fundraising disclosure pathway or do you want to be doing ESG for buildings in which case it's more on the kind of UK GBC World Green Building Council there's a lot of very good courses run by those guys but they're more around certification than they are around ESG I don't think ESG for real estate has been fully sorted yet because one relates to how the emissions of the building and the social impact of the building and the other relates to the emissions of the company and the social impact of the company, which may or may not be the aggregation of all the real estate. So that's where it gets really challenging because the the criteria for ESG disclosure can be either frameworks or standards and any combination, depending on which country you're in, any combination of up to 30 might be UN SDGs, might be GRI, might be GRESB might be TCFD, like all the, uh, picking an acronym. This is just um, incredible, isn't it? How right? many? How many? And like uh, SASB, and, and they're changing and they're fusing Evolving. over time, emerging legislation coming out of Europe. And then Article 8 stuff, and uh, you know the SEC and the US are also in consultation around disclosure. Disclosure might be about the size of business you work in. Yes. So that wasn't a very good answer to if I'm just starting out what do I do there's extremely good publications by groups like McKinsey the big four um we're beginning to put stuff out about ours more around the the real estate of ESG read read whatever you can um, and just keep and, gaining knowledge yeah yeah and applying it perhaps as well really isn't it what one of the things which uh was mentioned in the forum we met as well was technology is sustainability has become a great way to include technology in the property and the real estate world which was always so much driven by uh, material things if you know what i mean it's more touching yeah. but uh, do you do you do you agree to that do you because you have worked in both the both the environments and it would be prop tech as well as um leading esg so is that something you see as well a little bit so Quite often you see wired score certification lumped in with ESG reporting. And it's quite interesting because ultimately it's about the connectivity of a building. So it's quite hard to say how is that environmentally, socially or governance impactful. 
and yet they turn up on ESG reports disclosures. And I think it's because increasingly as sensors are deployed within buildings, smarter buildings can operate more efficiently and everybody's looking for operational efficiency. So I, I think the role for technology is absolutely there. I would counter it with that whole, keep it simple. But I, you know, the, the role for technology to know that you've arrived for the lift to turn up to put your coffee in the right place and tell you what the weather is, is fine. The role for technology to turn a light off, reduce an air conditioning unit because the load on that floor plate is less is absolutely critical. Yeah. So, and, and any combination of those things. And um, technology is a really interesting thing because as a consumer of, of power, data, coolant, data centers are you know, energy very, very intensive. And so it's quite easy to say more technology in the building, more efficient building, more sustainable building, but there's an implication to- At the back. At the back, yeah. So scope. That said, I do think it's where it can be fitted or retrofitted. It's relevant, important. And we've all seen those buildings lit up at night that didn't need to be lit up at night. So there, there must be efficiency gains to be had through the deployment of technology. And then of course, the other end is things like measurable and, and the various reporting software packages that are out there. And so for, for data to be gathered in real time for people to be able to see, just like your smart meter at home, um, what are our greenhouse gas emissions of this building, this portfolio today in real time? When, you know, I, I, th um, I think it's MIT said, if, if uh, scream until, squeeze the data until it screams. And so when buildings are dumb, not able to report, you can't see a fan core unit that's on an infinite loop then those things by definition are inefficient. So um, I think the role for technology to, to fuse with buildings is absolutely there. Absolutely, and it's so beautiful. Like, I really like what you said as well, the, the things we don't see about the data center. I mean, the smallest thing that I sometimes battle as well, someone has emailed me and I want to acknowledge that I've read the email, but you know what footprint it has as to, but you don't see it. So it's so many emails we get of thanks yeah. noted. And right. so it, it's it's just like those small things. So I you, think you can uh, feel less guilty. Bitcoin mining, not so much. One email data packet. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, um, you run some retreats as well in your private life. Uh, yeah. How did that start? Is that still going? And um, <laughs> Intermittently. So it started, gosh, how did that start? I'd been learning with a medicine man down in Devon for a couple of years, and it became clear to me that it was geographically inconvenient for a start, Devon and London. <laughs> um, but also, More footprint. <laughs> right. I felt there were people in the London real estate community who could benefit from some of that indigenous knowledge. So we'd been learning at that point the Native American medicine wheel, which is different to the Peruvian medicine wheel. I'm just going to get very nerdy for a minute. No, no. <laughs> and so I wanted to share it with people who wanted to hear it and sent out a very random email. I said, does anybody want to come on a retreat that I haven't entirely worked out how to do, but we'll do some stuff with the land and some spirits and Native American medicine wheel and, and um, it'll probably be good for us. And it was post-pandemic. Actually, it wasn't. It was post-lockdown post one. And it was in incredible land that has been... It's got a, a labyrinth on it and a crystal grid on it. And it's it's very, very special. It's on an energy line. And so it was just a way of taking people who have very, very impactful day jobs 
out of London and into a field and just like you did in Sky, turning off their mobile phones and turning on their soul food for a couple of days because so much of what we do sometimes is can feel like a professional compromise. You recycled your coffee cup on the way in and you went and spent tons and tons of carbon commissioning a steel and concrete building. So it was a little bit about how to give those people a sense that it's all right to be in relationship, in right relationship with the planet and to carry that with you back into the boardroom. And so that one was an adults retreat. I then went on to do a family retreat, which was <laughs> keep wilding kids and rewilding adults. Kids are already wild. Oh, ours is always on a tree. Like it's yeah. difficult to bring him down. And if Perfect. you're doing the next one, I would be coming for the adult one as well as the family one. So yeah. I, I may do one. I, I'm, I'm remiss that um, when you go on a quest, the output of that quest belongs to the tribe. It doesn't belong to the person who went on the quest. And so I have a late debt with spirit that um, I, I need to pay, which is to share what happened in Peru. Um, what happened on the mountain should not stay on the mountain. And so I've been threatening to do a, an adults retreat later in October. This might be me publishing it in this part of the conversation because it, it, it. Yeah. I don't speak it. I'm not committed to it. Put it out there. <laughs> exactly. So some friends of mine have been thinking about doing a, their corporate retreat. They work with growing materials for building. There are various people, a bit like yourself, over the course of the last year have said, couldn't make the last ones if you do another one. So maybe, mate, thank you for the question. Maybe this is me saying, all right, middle of October, I'm there for it. Let's let's go let's go tent up in a field again. Um, that might be it. Let Thanks me know. I'll be out. there. I would be there. So can I, am I allowed to ask this question? And you can say no. You said that there was something which happened up on that mountain. Are you yeah. able to share that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, lots happened up on that mountain. So um, <laughs> suspend disbelief for a second. The mountains have spirits. And, and Julia, the, I'm also brought up as an Indian. Uh, yeah, so you're good for this. Family. I don't know who's listening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that bone of disbelief is not... It doesn't exist. You're all right. So the mountain is called um, Pachatusan, and it's the the sacred home of the Earthkeeper lineage. Um, and so we went in in pilgrimage in homage to Pachatusan, and the keeper of the mountain is the the physical Earthkeeper of the mountain is a guy called Martin, who is the most extraordinary shaman I've ever seen. He he looks like he comes from the stars. He physically looks different to the rest of us. He he looks like a you know moon being. He's just extraordinary. Anyway, so we got up to the mountain, whatever it is, 13,000 feet, pretty cold. And he was calling in our permission and our connection to the stars. And if you're willing to go with it, a lot of the spirits have moved up into the mountains to get away from the cities. It's busy. And they kind of came because they'd been called in and they knew that we were there. Mm -hmm. So on the first night, there were lots of little flashing lights around. And I remember thinking, interesting because it you know when someone's carrying a tent to a, a torch past a tent mm -hmm. and then there's something very very different almost like flickering and so yeah there's spirits around and so that was the first night and in some of these cultures there's the concept of the shaman's death and the shaman's death is an initiation you meet your own death in the peruvian medicine wheel that's the energy of jaguar it's meet your fears in the native american construct similar thing they used to bury braves underground uh, at night and just leave their faces exposed for anything to come along it might be coyotes or hyenas or whatever and so the point is you meet your fears and it can either be something that's organized like the 
the tribe will bury you or it just comes out of the blue spirits decided that's your moment for your for your meet your own death mm-hmm. so night two up on the mountain i was in a sleeping bag that was good to minus 15 and i got very very cold early in the evening as soon as the sun <laughs> goes down it's like a light goes out it's cold yeah. so by about 9 30 it's got dark at like seven o'clock by about 9 30 i knew i was cold i went next door because when you're cold being with another person can give you good share yeah. and luckily my friend Catherine next door uh, said yep come in we'll stay together and at some point in the middle of the night I just knew I was in trouble and I don't know how I woke her up because it's sort of the consciousness kicks in and out at this point she went off to get the medic who only spoke Spanish and I didn't speak any Spanish and so somehow between me and the medic we had this conversation where she said your heart rate's high but it should be you're at high altitude your blood is kind of fine medically there's nothing I can do for you and and I can't get you off the mountain <laughs> like oh okay so oh shit <laughs> and she said you need the showman and so I was carried across the field I don't actually know who carried me into the tent with the shaman and this really incredible shaman called Chino who was also the camp's cook like just <laughs> keeping it real <laughs> um, <laughs> he he filled up my sleeping bag with hot water bottles and put his sleeping bag over me. So at that point, I've got two minus 15 great sleeping bags, loads of hot water bottles. But more than that, he, and it's cold outside, it's kind of minus five outside. He lay on the ground next to me, just in his clothes, and he radiated heat. He generated heat through his hands. He called in energy and he sang to me. And all I remember was he was pulling these grey cords out of my head, like, the only way I can describe it is like cobwebs, like rubbish being pulled out of my head. And and over time, I warmed up and fell asleep, but didn't think I was going to see the next day. I'd mentally flown away. Other people, you'll know about this, but people refer to it as astral travel. You can go to people that aren't next to you, but you can energetically meet them. So I kissed my son goodbye. I kissed my dog goodbye. And as I was kind of going down the, tu- the dying tunnel, the, the you're off tunnel, I just remember thinking, this is rubbish. <laughs> this is really <laughs> shit. <laughs> At the tender age of forty-three. Why am I? Like, why am I here? Like there, there ought to be more people to say goodbye to, and I've got things to do. And so I might be the only angry dying person. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going. Nah, it's not my. Is that it? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but, but very strongly, like no, I'm not going. Like wow. this is this isn't it. So. Seeing dawn the day you think you're not going to see it is is just an incredible thing. And it helps clarify what's important and what's not important. And tea tastes amazing and seeing your friends tastes incredible. And yeah, very beautiful. Very, very lucky. But Chino saved my life. And and it was the shaman that saved my life, not the medic. And and how how incredible that that trip knows to triangulate when something is physical and when something is energetic um absolute kudos to to the people who who ran that from four winds society because to be able to take so many people on their individual and collective journeys but in safety is is an extraordinary thing wow (laughs) wow right and then coming back to the real world as it were down the mountain back to uk back home yeah does it ever feel like i want to go back I thought about that a lot, actually. So carbon footprint wise, no. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think it will ever be the same. But um, I've met a couple of shamans out there that would like to raise money for teaching more people this and creating retreat spaces. And so if I ever went back, it 
some of those communities are incredibly poor and so i i hope my relationship with peru isn't over but i'd like to think it will be about supporting them and the work that they're doing and whether i physically need to be there or not doesn't really matter but it's funny to call it the real world because i think the real world was up there and we're in the unreal world down here it's a it's yeah it's like a matrix here isn't it where you're yeah. yeah but it's you know what's amazing about that is that it's there all the time like if you want to tap in then you can tap it you just choose you just choose to meet yourself and and the energies of where you are and it's like a radio frequency that um anybody can tune in it's it's there and the more we concentrate the more refined it gets do you do you meditate no i don't no, people think that I, because I came back and everyone said, oh, you've been on plant medicine. I was like, no, I haven't. I've never taken a thing in my life. I I fully accept and appreciate that other people do. And that's their gateway and, and have total respect for that. But no, I don't meditate very much. I used to have a yoga practice. I think now the radio signal's always on. So it feels like moving through the world with all of the visual data that everyone else is getting. And sometimes spirits now come and jump on me and want to have a bit of a chat at the times so that's slightly inconvenient. Um, so <laughs> so it, it's, it's handling both sides. It, it's, it's an always on meditation now. How fantastic. Oh, my God. I, uh, I want to ask more questions, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll meet up again properly. We will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to close our, uh, the, uh, the question I ask is, what is the biggest risk you have taken? And uh, what have you learned from those, you know, what was the lesson? There's loads. <laughs> um, and even that statement's sort of interesting, isn't it? Like, there's not one, there's loads. So the, you know, moral of the story is do things that make you uncomfortable. I would, one of them has been kind of this coming out as a hippie, the, 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 the... But why the, why do we get branded as hippie? Because I sometimes feel really close to be able to say that you know i do believe in spirituality and i right. i i do believe in power and energies and you know you would walk into a room sometimes and you you just feel like this is very tense yeah. and so we accept that so why are we not accept that there are it's it's it, there is no branding is it it's just no i think it's because we've been in the last 200 years we've been trained to be rational and logical the enlightenment period said if science can't prove it then it doesn't happen and so much now is is kind of the fusion of some of these ancient things plus science being able to really understand what consciousness and energy is but but we we've not respected any of those gifts that have been part of cultures for millennia right it's it's become something that is socially unacceptable and it's only now that there's kind of neo-shamanism and people recovering their spiritual connection which is our connection to the earth and all the living things because we need to because we're not going to survive without it you know it's it's now more acceptable to practice that be that bring it to work come out if in in that sense but yeah it's felt it's felt incredibly risky because maybe maybe you're less of a able to make corporate rational business decisions if yeah. if there's a ghost in the room having a chat with you at the same time so yeah that's been risky i once gave extinction rebellion an office that that turned out to be quite risky <laughs> but also same thing right consciousness raising it, it you know there is a bigger change, purpose yeah change isn't always comfortable but maybe i wasn't as respectful of the risk for other people around that and so with action comes consequence and you know, we learn. That's kind of the point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's where the growth happens. 
Yeah. Or even if it doesn't, it's just something as a learning process, you move, move forward really, isn't it? Yeah. How it was, this can go on forever, by the way. I, I don't, I've got it. so many questions. <laughs> we'll do part two. <laughs> I think so. That's a great idea. I think so. But Juliet, thank you so much for joining us today and enlightening us. And I can't wait for October now. You've put it out Thanks there. So I'm counting on it. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you you pulled something out of me that needed to be voiced. So thanks. No, perfect. And we'll be there. Uh, If it's a family retreat, we'll be there. If it's an adult retreat, I will be there. Any any combination. I love kids at retreats. They bring something very special. So so it's about what you need and what you feel is right for you and your family at the time. But um, yeah, either which way it was. It's always the right people meant to be there at the right time. I've learned to trust that bit. Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you so much, Julia. And uh, part two, definitely. All right. We are putting it out there, manifesting that one as well. I'll give it Uh, a go. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Julia. This was absolutely mind-blowing. You know, we have discussed work, we have discussed personal life, emotions, and a personal journey of what you have had uh, pre and post-COVID and the impacts on our decision making and how it grows us as human beings Um, so thank you for being so open and honest with our listeners and all I can say to all the listeners is it was my absolute pleasure uh, speaking with Julia today and thank you for tuning in and uh, please listen uh, please share and uh, subscribe to our podcast business of building thank you so much again for tuning in